0: Uh, let's pray together and we'll pray for attention during this kind of session. Hey? Loving Father, we ask that you be with us now, sharpen our minds and uh, open our ears, help us do some work on a very important topic and, uh, and think through what it means for our mission, for our discipleship, for our churches uh, and for our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name and through the Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the great things, many great things about the, the network we're a part of with Geneva is we're a part of a group of pastors and planters and teams who think deeply and theologically and think deeply and theologically also about culture and context and contextualisation. And so we're a part of a group that's not just doing how-tos, nor is just um, mapping out orthodox theology and so on, but we're wanting to do those things also in a really deep, thoughtful reflection on culture and contextualization and, and, and all that kind of business. And so we just wanted to give a spot on that. It's one of those things uh, that evangelicals are thinking a lot about, and it hasn't been something that we've explicitly done a session on, I don't think, at a Geneva conference. And so we thought, well, let's do that. Let's take some time to share the kinds of conversations that we're having all the time uh, amongst the the, the leaders and the coaches and the planters, but let's do some time on the platform along those lines. Uh, I've got four points that I'm gonna present in sort of a more of a paper format. So it'll be a fairly dense uh, kind of presentation from me. Um, And so sorry if that means you miss some bits as we go. But what we will do is, is, after the conference, we'll email out this paper so that if you missed some things or didn't quite get um, what I was trying to get at, then you have a second chance to reread as well as re listen. And after I've presented that for about 20 minutes or so, then Andrew is going to come up and then interact with that a little, respond to that, pick up on some things, smash it, whatever. And, uh, and time permitting, we might then be able to take some questions too. Um, So I'm just going to dive right into this question of culture. Um, I'll just dive right in with these four points, each of which then has some implications, and then we'll go from there. Let's see how we go. Number one, we are incarnate in this world. Number one, we are incarnate in this world. It's stating the obvious point, but theologically we have to say that we human beings are infleshed by virtue of our created nature. The world, the physical world, was created good, and despite sin, it remains the creation of our God. In the most basic tautological sense, the whole world is the kingdom of God, for God is the king and maker. In that just most basic, almost tautological sense. Our bodies, the desires of our bodies, our emotions, when those things are, cre- are controlled and experienced according to God's good purpose, those things are good. And the things that humans are then built into, the family, society, culture, marriage, cities, are good things given to us by our creator God. The created world itself, including its sensual delights and cultural artifacts, are good things. More than that, God has not abandoned his creation in salvation God the Son came to us incarnate, in flesh. He reaffirmed his commitment to the physical world. And our conversion is the word planted in us that will save us. And we live out then our Christian lives in our physical bodies. Our bodies themselves are offered up in worship, in acts of service. We are saved and live out our saved lives in our body as we offer them as living sacrifices. And ultimately our hope is the redemption of our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is incarnate. You don't have to be missional to be incarnational. You don't have to read any demographic studies to be incarnational. You don't, in fact, have to do anything whatsoever. You don't even need to be Christian to be incarnational. You are incarnate. It was incarnate. Amazing for Jesus to be incarnate, for God the Son wasn't. But for you, you already are, whether you like it or not. Incarnation is not a mandate. Incarnation is not a mission. It's just a fact that we do well to recognize, which has four implications. Well, at least I'll pick up four. Four implications. So this is the four implications of the first point of four. (laughs) Anyway, so... Point 1A, we can and we should rightly say grace for all the good things God gives. Our evening meal, why is it only the evening meal? Unless it's pizza, I don't know. But the morning meal, sunset, surf, fishing, children, emotions, hobbies, our biological makeup, our society. It is honoring to God to give thanks to him for all good things. We can even love and give thanks for the cities and towns we live in. In fact, it's dishonoring to God if we ignore the good gifts he gives us because we're so spiritually minded, you know. This is how we acknowledge in that most basic sense that the whole world, the whole earth is God's kingdom. He is its king. We are his subjects. B, 1B. It's silly to think that we can ignore those things, these incarnate realities, and just preach the gospel. For the world is the creation of the God of the gospel. This world is the creation of the God of the gospel. We preach the gospel. This is the way um, Philip Jensen in his book on preaching puts it. We speak God's special revelation into his general revelation. There's no other way around it. We speak God's special revelation into his general revelation. And so it's wise to pay attention to physical, practical details in ministry. Sound systems, aesthetics, culture, economics, sociology. C. Our duty is to do good to others that springs out of or rather our duty to do good to others springs out of creation structures and the commands of god those creation structures and commands of god they get renewed reinforced enriched by salvation Those creation structures and commands of God get renewed, reinforced, enriched by the hope of the new heavens and the new earth that then reflects back on the way we see our lives now. But they're grounded. The duty to do good is grounded in the creation and the command of God. We do good deeds, in other words, because of the great commandments, not because of the great commission, fundamentally. Much of the stuff that Christians talk about as mission or redemption or uh, such things is really better called ethics rather than missiology. You don't need missiology in the most basic sense to love your neighbour as yourself. You do it because she is your neighbour. And so when it comes to a Christian stance towards good deeds, social work, art, politics, professional goods, urban renewal... These all are expressions of our obedience to God. In loving him, in ruling his world as made in his image, in loving our neighbours as ourselves, both individuals and groups, both in caring for physical needs and caring for emotional needs and caring for social needs, Christians should do good. We are eager to do what is good. But we do this as ethics, as godly Christians, as godly Christian individuals, godly Christian friends, godly Christian neighbours, godly Christian citizens of our nation. Not particularly because, fundamentally because we're missionaries, or particularly because we're church members, but because we are human beings made in his image, remade in the image of his son. We do good deeds because of the great commandments, not because of the great commission. And D, diversity and individuality and preference are not bad. Otherness is not fallenness. Diversity is not depravity. God made a diverse world, diverse human beings to operate in complementary unity. And the Bible upholds preference. I mean, just the basic example of 1 Corinthians 7 is instructive. It's better for the cause of the gospel to give yourself fully to the preaching of the gospel as a single man or woman. That's better. But if you've made up your own mind and if you're under no compulsion and you want to get married, you can get married. Both are legitimate. Although one is better, we must not therefore compel others. If you want to stay Single, good. You do what's better. If you want to get married, good. And so we could say further into the MTS world uh, that if someone is under no compulsion and has made up their own mind and has chosen not to go into full-time ministry, then let them do what they want. They are not sinning. It might mean that some individuals give themselves to do good deeds in cancer research or federal politics or wealth creation. And as a result, are less able to focus on Christian ministry. In principle, that's not somehow bad or not mission-focused. It's the part of the diversity of greater and lesser goods God has made the world so. So that's point one. We are incarnate. Point two. This is a fallen, transient world. So, the danger of focusing on affirmations of the goodness of creation, renewed in uh, salvation and incarnation and the new heavens and the new earth, the danger is we slide into overemphasis. We fail to recognize just how pervasive sin and its effects are. This world, the Bible says, is under sin, it is under the control of the evil one, it is the world. It is in bondage to decay and human beings are handed over to sin. And sin taints every aspect of human nature. We're totally depraved. And sin and judgment now renders this world, the world, unclean. Yes, 1 Timothy 4 says that all things can be received with thanksgiving, but sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Because of sin, God will judge the world. The judgment of this world includes now transience and ambivalence. Things no longer behave the way they're meant to behave. Things are no longer able to be fully subdued by human beings. Things are no longer just. Things are no longer fair. And all is dying and decaying. This renders our efforts in this life absurd, futile, and tragic. And God has set a day when he'll judge the world. And the judgment on this world will be complete, global, final, and decisive. Condemnation under the anger of God. Things can only be made fully right when God fully and finally holds all things to account and then makes all things new. What does this mean? Again, four subpoints. A. A, just as much as we preach the goodness of the created world, we must also preach the fallenness and the sinfulness and the coming judgment on the world. Just as much. <laughs> Neither can be emphasized to the exclusion or the limiting of the other. But both must be declared. Now, emphasis is hard, isn't it? How exactly do you ensure emphasis? Well, it it has to do with the amount of time you give to something, lots of time on the goodness of the world, a little bitty time on the fallenness, you know, or vice versa. It has to do with how often you repeat it, how enthusiastically, you know, very excited when I talk about sin and judgment and passing disclaimers about, of course, God made it good, you know has to do with time, with enthusiasm. It also has to do with how much theological heavy lifting doctrines do. You know, If you affirm the, 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 the atonement, but then don't really use the atonement to do any heavy lifting in terms of ethics or church and so on. Yeah. So we need to emphasize both the goodness and the fallenness. Both love the city and hate the city. <laughs> B. To be. we should be rightly suspicious of all things church planter be rightly suspicious of your motives be rightly suspicious of your relationship to the physical world including your desires your perceptions be suspicious of human culture and civilization even the earthly church and her institutions, her doctrines her efforts to contextualize Beware of optimistic, naive, idealistic confidence. Distrust yourself, church planter. Beware of the sinful temptations, not just of sex, but of the lust for other pleasures, power, popularity, Security, wealth, respect. Standing for the truth and being pure in godliness can slowly be eroded by worldliness. And every step of the way, our clever minds can justify it for the cause of the gospel and contextualization and building bridges. A bridge that never gets crossed is just a jetty. <laughs> Third, C, rather, sorry. So 2C. Sin and judgment must be preached fully. Sin and judgment judgment must be preached thoroughly. Sin is not merely misplaced love. It is that. Sin is not merely impersonal bondage. It is that. Sin is not merely idolatry. It is that. But it is the, imperson- the personal, deliberate, contemptible defiance of our Creator. And judgment is not simply the free choice of the sinner to be without God. Judgment is not merely the natural consequence of us turning from God. Judgment is the personal, eternal, conscious punishment of the sinner under the personal, present wrath of God. And D... Mortality and confusion restrict how much we can ever receive good things in this world. Mortality and confusion restrict how much we can ever receive good things. This world, even in its best moments, is flawed. So there's nothing we can purely receive or redeem. All things, in a sense, need to be rejected as fallen and mortal it's fatally flawed, this world, even in its best moments. The amount of restoring, redeeming good we can ever do is very limited. Limited by sin, limited by mortality, limited by this confusion and ambivalence of a fallen world. We just have to admit this. And if you actually read the primary texts, the James Davison Hunters and the Andy Crouches on cultural change, that's where they end up. That the prospects for cultural change is drastically limited and the larger the scale on which we try and uh, implement that change the less effective it is less predictable it is we have to acknowledge how limited the effects of cultural change ever are and even on a personal level isn't that true my godliness is molded by my biology and my past history and my cultural context the larger the scale The more restricted our impact, the less likely we can secure the outcomes we are intending. We are incarnate, but this is a fallen, transient world. Third, and these get shorter now. Third, salvation out of this world. The ground of our salvation in Christ is in Christ, not in us. It's one for us vicariously, positionally. He dies in our place, he rises in our place, we die in him, we are justified in him. Our salvation is hidden with Christ in God, outside ourselves, outside this world. And the goal and the completion of our salvation is a total transformation, the work of glorification when Christ returns outside this world. Salvation reaches its fulfillment outside this present world, outside our power. We look to it in passive hope, waiting. Now, yes, there is a continuity there. It's it's a continuity. It's us who will be risen, isn't it? Our bodies. So there's a continuity between this world and the next. But there is also discontinuity. It's a new thing, isn't it? I'm making all things new. It's spoken of in apocalyptic language. There's a degree of, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it'll be different. It'll be different somehow. There's enough continuity to ensure identity, but not enough continuity for us to speculate about the details. I'll come back to that. All our ministry work is directed to this eternal goal. There is a fruit of salvation now, yes. The progressive work of change in our lives, which is progressive but incomplete. And as we live out our salvation now, we do good. We're eager to do good, to treat even these temporary things rightly for the way we live now anticipates our future. Again, four things. A, to live the good life in this time in history is to deny our sinful self for the obedience to God, the love of others, and the salvation of the world. We live cross-shaped lives. And our model of mission is not incarnational, but crucifixional, cross-shaped We set aside genuine goods, good things, and genuine preferences, good things, for the sake of greater goods, godliness and love and the salvation of this world. B. To live the good life in this time in history is to hold loosely to the good things which are passing away for the sake of the eternal good things. Which will endure. Now, that's not Gnostic dualism. It's not an ontological dualism, as if these things are bad and those things are good. No, it's not an ontological dualism. It's an eschatological dualism: the things of this age, which are temporary, compared to the things of the world to come, which will endure. See, our godly living and our good deeds only bring the kingdom in three possible senses, if you want to use that term. There's only really three biblical ways you could. You could say they bring the kingdom by expressing the saving of king, uh, kingdom of God in our lives, the fruit of salvation, just by the fruit of that saving kingdom. Or our godly living and good deeds are a commendation of the message of the gospel. They give credibility and attractiveness to the gospel message. Or our godly living and good deeds anticipate the saving kingdom to come. They show what things will be like in the new creation. Good deeds do not bring the kingdom in any other sense than in this fruit of salvation, commendation of the gospel, and anticipation of what's to come. And D, it is very questionable to make speculation about the continuities between this world and the new creation. As if we know that animals, that Fido will be there, or bridges will be there, or paintings will be there. We just don't have that kind of information in the scriptures. It's questionable. And so to talk about redeeming culture is really problematic. At the best, it's a metaphor for using things for a good reason. But it's unhelpful to use such a strong biblical word as a mere metaphor. And finally, and shortest of all, Point four, the mission of the church. Talking about the mission of the church causes confusion because some people use the word church as a, just a collective noun for Christians, as a murder of crows, a pride of lions, school of fish, and a church of Christians. <laughs> they walked into a pub. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a group for Christians. But others have rightly a tighter definition of church, the institution of God's people or the local gathering of God's people when gathered around his word. And with this tighter definition, we need to be clear. What are the duties of Christians and what are the duties of the church? What does this mean? Well, A, Christians do have a mandate to do good to all people, especially the household of believers. Christians ought to do good, both individually and corporately in voluntary groups in cooperation with secular groups and government groups through their professional work. But as we've already said, this is not because of mission, really, but rather ethics. It's because of love. B, in the tightest definition, the church as the church gathered around his word is not given a mandate to do good deeds to the world. <laughs> in fact, if church is in the tightest definition the gathering of God's people around his word, we'd have to get them in here before we could then give them soup while a sermon gets preached. <laughs> so it's almost dif- difficult to imagine how you would. In the first place, the gathering of God's people is to praise God, build up the believer. The gathered church in the first place is not for the outsider at all. And C, and last of all, even just the church as the church, as an institution or as a community with its leaders, even in that slightly looser sense, the institution or community of believers, there is no mandate for this community as that community to do good to the world. Now I don't think you can say a church must not have a soup kitchen but I don't think she must either and there is the danger that she will lose focus on the one unique thing she can do, preach and pray by adding on more and more goals. Our necessary and unique mission and purpose is to glorify God by serving him and making disciples.